Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode four in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study podcast. This episode is entitled, Glorious Light Ministered by Jars of Clay, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, this is an exciting day for me. Uh, I think there are a few verses in the New Testament that I've quoted as much in the last five years as 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when talking about what it means to be born again, what actually happens in the heart of an individual when he is rescued from darkness and brought into light. And Paul likens it to the kind of creative work God did at the beginning of creation when God said, let there be light. And there's all kinds of theological implications that come from that, the sovereignty of God and salvation, God speaking light into our darkened hearts. We're going to talk about all that, but woven in and around the glory of the gospel and the power of the gospel um, is Paul's evident frailty, uh, the, the evident kind of obvious unimpressiveness of Paul's physical life, the fact that he's constantly being arrested and beaten and, and doesn't look like much and he's not all that impressive. And how can such a glorious gospel have such a frail vessel, a frail container. But that's true not just of Paul, but of all Christians. It's one of the number one feelings that I have. I've had the privilege of being all over the world and being in local churches in in many different nations. And uh, one thing that's always hit me is how unimpressive, outwardly unimpressive local churches usually are. Uh, they're not usually massive, huge assemblies. They're small like house churches in big cities in China or in India or whatever. And they, the rest of the, of the millions that live in that city don't even know that they exist. And you think, could this really be, this unimpressive thing, really be the work of the eternal God? And it really is. And so 2 Corinthians 4, basically with this idea of a of a glorious treasure in jars of clay addresses those very themes. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover in these 18 verses in this fourth chapter of this second letter to the Corinthians. So let me read uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 18. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. 
Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Andy, what's the connection as we begin this fourth chapter between verse 1 and chapter 3, verse 18, and what is this ministry that Paul speaks of? All right, so at the end of chapter 3, he's talking about the incredible power of the new covenant and of God's work through the Spirit in transforming us, he says, from glory into glory or ever-increasing glory. This is the work of the Holy Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord who comes and transforms us And we increasingly reflect Jesus's glory. We are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. That's the ultimate goal of our salvation, from glory into glory. And therefore, as he moves on into chapter 4, realize that the original epistle wasn't divided into chapters, but it says, since we, through God's mercy, have this ministry, we do not lose heart. We're not discouraged. And he's going to talk in this same chapter about some of the very tough afflictions they're going through. But in effect, he's saying it's all worth it because people are being transformed more and more into the glorious image of Christ. It's worth it. Everything he's going through is worth it. That's the connection. Mm. Now, why would Paul and his fellow ministers be tempted to lose heart, and why don't they? Well, uh, as we're going to see in chapter, um, uh, in, t- in the same chapter, in verse um, 8 and 9, he says, We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, uh, persecuted, uh, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. He had already said in chapter 1, We do not want you to be ignorant of the trial we went through in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. And then in chapter 11, he'll go through a tremendous litany of his suffering. So putting it all together, it's not that hard. Paul's getting beat up for the gospel. He's getting persecuted. He's getting accused. Um, Jews are coming from other cities, uh, hunting him down and stirring up trouble with Gentile authorities. Mm. That's what his life was like. And so if you walked around with Paul, you would see a high level of suffering. And with Paul being the apostle to the Gentiles, the messenger, the emissary, the ambassador of the gospel, as he's going to say in chapter five, uh, you'd scratch your head and say, why is he being treated so badly, but Jesus himself opened the door for this. He said, if the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the servants in his household? So you should expect actually even worse treatment if the Lord and the master is being treated this way. So fundamentally, uh, we're getting crushed because we're being persecuted by the forces of Satan that are hostile to the gospel. That's what you would see in our lives. Now, it seems like Paul may go on to simultaneously defend himself and attack his opponents in verse 2. What would be disgraceful or underhanded ways of promoting a gospel ministry that Paul seems to ascribe to his opponents? And what does it mean to tamper with God's word? Okay, so Paul says we've renounced those kinds of ways, secret and shameful ways. So secret, uh, you know, in Thessalonians, he said we didn't put on a mask to cover up greed. 
So greed says a lot, doesn't it? I mean, if somebody's not really a servant of God, then they're a servant of Satan and of the flesh. And Satan, like he did with Jesus, comes with the world. So, you know, the the treasures of the world, the powers of the world, the pleasures of the world. That, therefore, would be uh, their true motive. Uh, the motive of false apostles, false messengers, et cetera, would be worldly. Uh, they'd like to get pleasures, maybe, you know, sexually with women, um, financially, money, uh, positions of power, influence at court, uh, being able to, you know, get influence with the with the Roman governors, uh, just whatever stuff the world has to offer. It's always the same menu. Every generation, it's the same stuff, powers and pleasures and possessions and, and all of those things. Paul says that's not our motive. Our motive is what it appears to be. We would like you to be saved. We'd like your sins forgiven. We'd like to spend eternity with you in heaven. So we don't need any secret and shameful techniques. We just simply preach the gospel. We simply commend ourselves, he says, to every man's conscience in the fear of the Lord. You know, we just we just go uh, to every place and preach the gospel of Christ. We don't have any secret techniques. We are what we appear to be. Yeah, and it's important too, I think, what he says about not tampering with God's word. I think yeah. also of how he speaks in Timothy of mm-hmm. rightly dividing the word and the importance of of not changing the message or twisting the message yeah. to those ends. I think he's referring to that as well Absolutely. in this verse. Absolutely. He says we don't distort it, twist it, et cetera. Why would you do that? Well, it's a feedback loop. You know, you preach some me- uh, parts of the message and you can imagine in our day and age, 21st century, a focus group. Mm. And, you know, sometimes they, they have people that, that have these little knobs in their hands where they'll twist it right for, for uh, I like that. that. Hey, that's good. And even more if they really like it. And then kind of back to neutral, that was okay. And then, oh, I don't like that. So you can imagine Paul preaching the gospel and, and getting to some of the law work. We are, all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. People twisting the knob down at that point. It's like, oh, that's, that's pretty negative. I don't like that, et cetera. Mm. Well, and then you go back, the focus group goes back and said, Paul, you know, you do some good things, but we could work on this. Mm. So let's go ahead and change this aspect here that did not, do well with our focus group. Um, let's get rid of that and let's, you know, let's let's fix it. I mean, it's generally good. There's some hope in there. There's some good things, but, you know, we're going to tamper it. Paul says we're not doing any such thing. You look at Romans and it's clear about sinfulness. It's clear mm. about the wrath of God. It's clear about judgment that's coming. It's clear about the fact that we're justified by faith, not by works. It humbles us. It lays us low and it saves us. Paul says we're not changing anything. Mm. So much more we could say on this theme, but let's go ahead and move into mm-hmm. verse three. It seems like Paul now returns to this imagery of a veil that he also mm-hmm. used back in chapter three in verses 14 through 16. Mm-hmm. What's the significance of Paul extending the concept of the veil beyond just the Jewish people to all those who are yeah. perishing? What does it mean for the gospel to be veiled? Well, um, as as we see in Matthew 13, Jesus talks about uh, the parables and uh, he quotes Isaiah 6. He said, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Uh, the people's heart is being callous. Their, their ears are closed, their eyes are closed, they don't see it. Mm. So there's a basic spiritual blindness. Uh, it's it's powerful, and it's not just the Jewish people. That That is who he discusses in chapter 3. He says, whenever Moses read, a veil covers their hearts. But it's true of Gentiles as well, just in a different way. It's a blindness. They do not see the truth. The gospel is veiled. So it's it's like the parable of the seed in the soils. It's the seed sown along the path. It just It's like hitting concrete. It just bounces and doesn't go anywhere. The people are blind to the truth. Now, an obvious question that follows on the heels of that then is, if the gospel can be veiled, mm-hmm. how is that veil removed? Yeah, so fundamentally, we first of all have to see in verse four, he says, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age, Mm. that has got to be Satan. 
And what an odd thing to call Satan, the God of this age. Um, it, you know, it says in, in 1 John, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is the ruler of the kingdom of the air in Ephesians 2. Very powerful. So he does a blinding work in the hearts and minds of people. So I think it's really powerful to see the miracles that Jesus did, the healing miracles, mm. are were literal, physical, physiological healings, but they were also um, pictures of the true spiritual healing that Jesus was doing and that the Spirit was doing in people's hearts. So just as he healed the man born blind in John 9 by making mud with the spit and wiping it on his eyes and the man washed away and he could see, so also the Spirit takes away spiritual blindness that Satan puts in people's hearts. It, it He does something to the eyes of our heart, so to speak, so that we can see invisible spiritual realities. So based on that, how might verses three and four help us have compassion and mercy on people who are rejecting, sometimes even with hostility, us and the gospel we are proclaiming based on what we just learned about the God of this world blinding the hearts, the minds of unbelievers? Right. I think it goes to Matthew 9 where Jesus said when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So there's invisible spiritual harassment, invisible spiritual bondage. They're in invisible spiritual chains. They are dead while they live. They're like spiritual zombies. They're walking around the living dead and they cannot save themselves. They cannot resurrect themselves spiritually. They cannot free themselves from their chains. And so that should give us compassion. The only thing that can set them free is the power of the Holy Spirit when the gospel is preached. Now, how is the gospel light? And mm -hmm. what's the connection between this light and the glory of the new covenant that was discussed in chapter 3 and verses 7 through 18? Well, the Bible frequently uses light as an image for glory, and sometimes it is a literal light, like the night that Jesus was uh, born and the angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds outside Bethlehem and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Um, the night became like day. So sometimes it's a literal physical light, but sometimes it's uh, it's more of a mental light. It's more of a heart light. It has to do with truth. It has to do with the, the, the radiant truth of the glory of God, which are the attributes of God, his love, his power, his wisdom, his strength, and his, uh, his compassion. All of those attributes are put on display, and there's the greatest display there has ever been of the glory of God is the cross of Christ, Jesus dying on the cross. And yet, on that day, it was actually physically dark, extremely dark, eerily dark. A darkness came over the land, it says, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. So basically from noon to three in the afternoon, it became almost like it was nighttime. It was that dark. And so there is a, a radiant glory that shines from the cross of Christ if you know what to look for. Now, the God of this age blinds our minds so that we don't see glory in a Jewish guy bleeding to death on a Roman cross. There's no mm. glory there. It's ugly. He had no beauty or majesty, it says, to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. It's repulsive. But for us as Christians, it becomes beautiful, the most radiant display of love there's ever been or power. And so fundamentally, there is a light, a spiritual light coming from the cross and the empty tomb that can save our souls. 
Andy, there's a lot for us to chew on in these first six verses of this chapter, but one more question before we move on from verse four. Mm-hmm. What does it mean that Christ is the image of God? We've seen this mm-hmm. image language language elsewhere in scripture. Uh, we think of mankind being created in the image of God, but mm-hmm. what is Paul talking about here when he says Jesus is the image of God? Well, he's the perfect man. Uh, he is His favorite title for himself was the son of man. So he's the consummation of everything that man was meant to be in the image of God. But more than that, as God himself, he is the second person of the Trinity. Um, He is the perfect manifestation of God's true nature. So he's the perfect man, and he's also the perfect God. He is, as the author to Hebrews puts it, um, he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation. NIV gives us character as the Greek, the imprint, like a like a signet ring pushed into into sealing wax. Mm. Um, and when you pull the ring away, that's the perfect copy of the ring. Jesus is that. He could say to Philip, "Whoever has seen me has seen the Father." So Jesus perfectly displays who God is, what God is. He is the image of God. I love that. And helpful Mm -hmm. for us as we understand the person of Christ, even in this passage here. Mm -hmm. Paul says that he and Timothy are merely servants proclaiming Jesus Christ as Lord in verse Mm 5. What's the significance of this Jesus Christ as Lord proclamation for those who receive the gospel and conversely for those who reject the gospel? Yeah, it's powerful. Verse 5, he says, we don't preach ourselves. And I think we're going to get later in this book to uh, his his opponents, his enemies, really here, the super apostles who are false teachers. They're servants of Satan. Um, it could be that they do preach themselves to some degree. They boast about themselves. They push themselves forward. Paul doesn't do that. Um, he said, "We're not. that's not us. You're not saved by believing in Paul, the apostle. You're saved by believing in Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, what that means, Jesus Christ as Lord means as God. I mean, if we confess Jesus is Lord, we're saying we believe in the deity of Christ. We mm. believe in the Trinity. We believe that Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. That's what we preach. We preach that Christ is Lord. It goes to John chapter 20. These are written, John's gospel and the miracles that are written in there, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, that you may believe in the deity of Christ. Mark's gospel begins the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I mean, right up front, It's like, okay, that's why I'm reading the Gospel of Mark. He's going to present evidence that Mm. Jesus is the Son of God or God the Son. That's what Jesus is Lord means. How does the fact that Paul promotes Christ as Lord with himself as a servant add to his credibility? Well, uh, the fact that he's getting nothing out of it, actually, it's making his life miserable. Uh, He's getting beaten up. He's getting incarcerated. He's not making any money off it. He's not well thought of anywhere he goes. He's getting none of the peas that the world offers. No, no possession, no power, no pleasures, no, no possessions, nothing. He's getting nothing for it. He's just getting beat up everywhere he goes. Mm. And yet he's got a supernatural joy because he's seeing people saved. So the fact that he's not preaching himself, but Christ as Lord, and that he himself is getting beat up and imprisoned and all that lends credibility to the message. Paul draws a connection in verse 6, this kind of final verse of the first section of Mm -hmm. this chapter. Uh, Paul draws a connection between the creative power of God in uh, making light at the beginning of creation, Genesis 1-3, and Mm -hmm. putting the light of the gospel in our hearts. Mm -hmm. What does this teach us about God's activity in removing the veil from an unbeliever and showing them the greatness of Jesus Christ? This is one of the greatest verses. I, I would just commend all of my listeners to memorize this. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, may his light shine in our hearts 
to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. I, I just I know it by heart. I think about it a ton. Why is it? Well, because it, it shows me a spiritual mechanism or way by which God saves sinners. Uh, what does it mean that in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that we are new creations? What does it mean to Nicodemus that we are born again? Hmm. What, what do all of these things mean? They all mean the same thing. That basically God creates out of nothing something that didn't exist before. Uh, it's a creation as in the Latin ex nihilo, creation from nothing, so that before God speaks, there is nothing. Then God says, let there be X and there is X. Let there be light and then there's light. Let there be this and there's this. Let there be that and there's that. Let the waters be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear and it happens. You know, the days of creation, Genesis 1, it's awesome. God speaks and it is. Well, that's foundationally what happens with our souls as well. So he likens these. You know, if you know that Genesis account, God says, Genesis 1 3, let there be light, and there's light. Now, let me tell you what was going on in your hearts. When you were converted, um, what happened was a messenger of the gospel, me, let's say, Paul would say, me, was proclaiming the facts of the gospel, the history of Jesus, being born of the Virgin Mary, living a sinless life. Remember how I preached some of his miracles, told you some of his teachings, gave you a sense of the greatness of the person of Christ. And then I told you that Jesus, the son of God who did all these miracles, died in our place on the cross and that he was raised from the dead on the third day. Somewhere in there, if that was your day, of being regenerate, if that was your day of being born again, you came to life. You were dead spiritually, now you're alive. Well, what happened was in your hearts, God spoke a kind of light. He mm. said, let there be light inside your heart. And there was light. A moment ago, there wasn't. Your heart was dark, it was dead. But then God spoke and said, let there be light. And, and it wasn't physical light. In your heart, inside the core of your being, there was this special light that he describes in verse six, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. It's kind of a complex formula there, mm. but it's the foundational concept that God is glorious. The radiant display of the glory of God, what does that mean? The attributes of God. God is powerful. God is wise. God is loving. God is patient. God is just. God is merciful. God is wrathful against wickedness. God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. God is holy. All of these attributes, the glory of God is shining in Christ, in Jesus, as you hear the narrative of his life, as you see how he interacts with women, he interacts with a widow, as he interacts with a man born blind. You hear these stories, it's like, wow. He stills the, the, the storm. He says to the wind and the waves, be still, and it's still. And you're like, what kind of man is this? I'll tell you who he is. He's God in the flesh. He's God in the boat. Somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit moves, and you suddenly see how glorious God is in his son, in the face of Christ. And at that moment, this light shines. Now, as I've said before, I've kind of added to it. When God says, let there be light, he must also say, let there be sight. There's no point in God saying, let there be light, if there is no sight in the universe. Hmm. The light isn't for himself. He already knew it. It's a display to his creatures. Hmm. And his creatures must be able to see it or there's no point. They must be able to understand it and, and get it. The eyesight of the soul, of the inner nature, is faith. 
So at the moment that God speaks, let there be light, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ, he also opens up light receptors in your heart called faith. And you can see mm. how glorious Jesus is. Your your the eyes of your heart, that's a phrase from Ephesians 1.18, are opened. You were blind and now you see, and you see in Christ crucified, verbally portrayed, you see the glory of God and you believe. Now, theologically, Paul tells us in Romans, at the moment of faith, at that moment, you're justified. You are forgiven. All of your sins are forgiven. I believe also at that instant, you are adopted as a son of God. You receive the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, all of these things happen in an instant at, at once. That's how salvation happens. All of that, in my mind, is in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Mm, an incredible verse. And as you said, worthy of our uh, memorization and mm. meditation on this incredible work that God does in saving sinners. Yeah, let me add a few things to it. Uh, first of all, when God speaks into darkness, let there be light, the darkness loses. <laughs> he never fails. It's not like he has a batting average here. When God says, let there be light, there's light. And so when God saves someone, they get saved. That's the the Calvinistic doctrine of irresistible grace uh, or effectual grace. When God speaks light into your heart, you've got light in your heart. Mm. And 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 that's just so powerful yes. to me. So um, God can save anyone anytime. Yeah, and, and encouraging for us as we share this incredible gospel that he's been outlining at the beginning of chapter four, as we go and proclaim that to continue to ask God to save even those who we've prayed for perhaps for a long time, knowing that when God speaks, uh, that will affect that salvation. So yeah. Praise God for that power. As we move into really the second half, the, the latter half of this passage, we start to focus in on this idea of the vessel that that amazing gospel mm -hmm. is contained in. What does Paul mean by saying that we have this treasure in jars of clay, and what does he see as the purpose for that? Well, simply put, I think the jar of clay is our physical bodies, okay, because we were created from the dust of the earth like Adam. Um, and so um, it, it's also a metaphor for just something unimpressive, something that's, you know, it's like just everyday stuff around. There's nothing that special about it. It's fragile. It can crack. It can break. Uh, all of that I get out of a jar of clay. This treasure goes back to verse 6, okay? So the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ is in a jar of clay. So since we're talking about knowledge, the knowledge of God being glorious, I'm thinking about even the human brain. Uh, that's the mysterious, I would say the most complex physical thing God ever made is the human brain. In some mysterious way, it's out of clay as well. Hmm. And so out of this clayish brain, in the midst of this clayish brain, we have thoughts and we have love and we have choices that we make. It's just a, a mystery, but it's woven together in our physicality. Now, Paul is saying just physically, as you look at our lives, we're a jar of clay. We're just, you know, we're not impressive. We, we get wounded. We have, we have, you know, damage that happens to our bodies and all that sort of stuff. I also think it's relevant to things like dementia, Alzheimer's, things like that. The fact that godly people can lose their personalities. They can become someone different than they were later in life mm. because we're fragile. Mm. We, we break down. Even our mental processes break down. So I get all of that out of the link between verse 6 and 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It also is a contrast to our future glorious resurrection bodies. These present bodies are wasting away. You'll get into that in chapter 5. Our glorious bodies that are coming, our future bodies, uh, will never do such. What's a common theme in verses 8 and 9, and what do these verses teach us about God's sustaining grace 
in the lives of his servants. Well, Paul is talking about his trials. He's going to go into great detail in chapter 11. But here uh, in these verses, he says, we're hard-pressed on every side. That goes back to chapter 1, the persecution that they went through in the province of Asia. Hard-pressed. So we've got enemies. We've got false accusations. We're in prison. We get beaten. All of this. Hard-pressed on every side. However, we're not crushed. In other words, here we are. So if Satan's trying to get us to stop preaching the gospel, it's not working. We're more determined than ever before to preach it. Um, we are perplexed. The things we're going through are, are difficult for us, but you know we're not we're not in despair. We're not giving up. So yeah, we have problems, lots of problems. We're trying to solve them, hmm. uh, but we're not dis- we're not filled with despair. We are struck down. That's true. We get beaten when 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 they knock us, we actually fall to the ground. Uh, but we're not destroyed, you know, we're, we're still around. Paul literally was stoned, it seems, maybe even to death. God raises him up out of the pile of rocks and he's preaching the next day. So that's kind of like acted out what, what he's talking about here in these verses, verse 8 and 9. Yeah, that's incredible. Mm-hmm. What does it mean to carry the death of Jesus in our body? And how is the life of Jesus manifested then in our lives? Well, Paul is, he says, I fill up in my body what is still lacking in regard to the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body in Colossians. So what he means is the persecutions are part of the package. Jesus had to die on the cross. A kernel of wheat had to fall into the ground and die to produce more seeds. And then those seeds had to fall on the ground and die as well. Mm. And so the idea is his persecutions are a picture of the idea of a, of a kernel of wheat falling to the ground uh, that will then bear uh, a big harvest. So we are carrying around in our body the death of Christ. In other words, we're continuing on that pattern of a kernel of wheat, uh, John 12, 24, a kernel of wheat falling into the ground and dying. That's what's happening to us. In verses 11 and 12, Paul makes an astonishing statement about the sovereignty of God and the suffering of his saints. What do we learn from these verses about God's purposes in bringing trials on his people, and what conclusion does this lead Paul to make? Well, he's saying we're being given over to death for your sake. Um, And so I think he's just talking again about his persecutions, the beatings, all the stuff that happened to him. And he's saying God has the the same purpose in our lives that he did in in the death of his own son. It's just part of the overall plan to save sinners. And so fundamentally, sinners are saved because Jesus was crushed and and bled to death on the cross. That's redemption accomplished in John Murray's title. Then redemption applied occurs with the same but lesser trial. The messengers are beaten up. The messengers are persecuted. The messengers are imprisoned. Mm. The messengers are at least rejected. In America, we don't usually get beaten up or imprisoned. But you go try to share the gospel with an unsafe family member, you're going to get verbally beaten up. You're going to have an estrangement in the relationship if they don't come to Christ. And so the death of Jesus results in life for those that believe. And so the same process, we're, we're being given over to death. We are sheep for the slaughter, Paul says in, in Romans chapter 8. We're, we're willing to die in some sense so that others may live. Paul connects his belief in the gospel to his proclamation of the gospel. Essentially, these should be inseparable. Why do you think so many Christians have difficulty speaking publicly about what they believe as we look at verses 13 through 15? So as I look at verse 13, he says, it is written, I believe, therefore I have spoken with the same spirit of faith we believe and therefore we speak. In other words, I think what what Jesus would say is out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. What you're full of in your heart, you're going to talk about. 
And that's why he says in Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him for the dead. So if your heart's filled with Christ, you're gonna speak about Christ. I believe in Jesus, therefore I speak about him. And more than that, I believe that Jesus has commissioned me to be a messenger of the gospel, Paul would say, therefore I must speak. He's compelled to speak, he says in, in 1 Corinthians, woe to me if I don't speak the gospel. And so because I believe, uh, I fervently speak this gospel message. Paul goes on then in verse 16 to say, so we do not lose heart. How is the outer self wasting away and the inner self being renewed? And what is it that keeps Paul from losing heart in the midst of all of this? Well, it'd be easy to get discouraged. I mean, uh, I think about what happened in Acts 18 where Paul where God appears to Paul and says, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, and do not be silent, for I have many people in the city and no one is going to attack you and harm you. Well, that gives me an insight. This was hard on Paul. I mean, he's not some robot. And so it was hard for him to, to be crushed, to be hated, to be, to be slandered, to be falsely accused, to be beaten again. Remember how in Jerusalem they stretched him out ready to beat him. And he said, is it lawful for you to beat a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? He didn't want another beating. He would be happy to skip another jewel in the crown at that point. Mm. He's, he's got enough of them. I don't need another beating. And so it's hard. It'd be easy for him to lose heart. But he says very plainly in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that because of the resurrection of the body, no Christian ser uh, servant should lose heart. We know uh, that our labor in the Lord is not in vain. That's why Paul says we don't lose heart. And that idea of, of the outer self wasting away is, is true of all of us as we age and as we draw ever closer mm -hmm. to the end of our physical lives. But even as we've been speaking of Paul's suffering, I just have to imagine that he felt very acutely this wasting away. Uh, and the contrast with the inner self being renewed would have been stark, I think, for him as he was writing this to the Corinthians. Yeah. I mean, we shouldn't imagine there's like this supernatural healing going on in his life. Um, like he was eating from the tree of life on each side of the river, the water of life in the New Jerusalem, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nation. So he got instant healing, 100% healing mm. uh, every day. I think, no, he said, let no one cause me trouble for I bear in my body uh, the wounds of the marks of Jesus. Mm. It's like these things must have had a cumulative effect on him. Maybe he didn't walk the same anymore. You know, maybe he had constant chronic pain, uh, different issues, that lingering, lasting issues that actually occurred. And so he said, outwardly, we're wasting away. However, I'm stronger in the inner man than I've ever been before, more mm. convinced of the truth of the gospel, more ex more excited about heaven than ever before. So inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. And I like that word being renewed. Jesus said to the Samaritan woman, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Instead, the water that I give him will become what? A spring of water welling up. You know, we, we continue to be renewed day by day. You know, his mercies are new every morning. He refreshes us day by day. And that perspective is on display as he goes on in verse 17 to call uh, this light momentary affliction uh, just amazing for those kind of words to flow from someone who's experienced so much. But it seems that that is because he's fixed his mind and his heart on this eternal weight of glory. What is that and how can we as Christians have this same perspective that Paul has? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. Verse 17, our light and momentary troubles. You know, I keep this in mind whenever I'm comforting or counseling with somebody who's going through a trial. I don't want to bludgeon them with it. I want to encourage them. But it would be good for each suffering person to compare their sufferings with Paul's. 
and they're almost certainly less. Paul's sufferings are greater. Certainly his physical sufferings are greater. I mean, who do you know that had eight significant lashings or beatings? I don't know anyone. I don't even know of anyone like that. Mm-mm. But Paul did, and, he, and he, he went through, that's what he went through, and he still calls it light and momentary. Mm. And he says in Romans eight eighteen, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us, in our resurrection bodies. So he says that these are light and momentary troubles, but he didn't just say that. He says they actually are achieving a purpose. They're preparing us for heaven. Mm. And so they're not willy-nilly random suffering for no purpose at all. They actually are achieving for us an eternal glory, a weight of glory that far outweighs them all. And so there is this weight of glory. It's interesting, the Hebrew word for glory, kavod, is related to weight. There's a weightiness, a massiveness to us. And God is adding weight to our glory with all of our sufferings. We are getting more rewards. Our our jewels, our crown is getting bigger and in some sense more massive, more substantial with all of these sufferings we're going through. So these light and momentary troubles are achieving a glorious end in which we will have stored up much treasure in heaven and a trail or a train of, of individuals rescued from Satan's dark kingdom, this is, he says, our crown and our glory and our joy. So this is achieving all of that for the glory of God. Andy, as we wrap up our time, how can verse 18 give us perspective on our life? And what final thoughts do you have for us on this incredible chapter? Well, 2 Corinthians 4.18 lines up very much with um, the entire uh, um, chapter 11 in Hebrews. Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Hmm. Faith has to do with invisible things. Faith is the eyesight of the soul by which we see invisible spiritual realities, past, present, and future. That's in my book, Infinite Journey, and it's my definition of, of faith. And so we are able to see the invisible things. Faith doesn't have to do with visible things. So therefore, he says, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. In order to do that, you have to understand we have two types of sight. We have physical sight, our eyeballs, and then we have the eyes of the heart, which is our faith. And so we're going to focus on faith issues. We're going to see the invisible God seated on his throne. We're going to see the invisible Christ at the right hand of God. We're going to see the invisible spirit powerfully at work all over the world doing his. We're going to see the invisible Satan and the invisible demons. And we're going to see an invisible judgment day that's coming, an invisible uh, eternal glory of the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. We're going to see all of that because all of that stuff is far more significant than the physical world that's around us. So we're fixing our eyes on that because this physical world that we see, everything we see with our eyeballs is temporary, Mm. but the unseen world is eternal. So that's what really matters. Andy, any final thoughts on this chapter as a whole? Yeah, I think that final exhortation uh, is an encouragement to all of us to not get so wrapped up in the things of the world and not be so anxious about it. And then secondly, go back to verse six and say, Mm. thank you, God, that you spoke into my soul the beauty of the glory of your son. And I can see his glory and his beauty with the eyes of faith. Thank you for saving me. Well, thanks, Andy. This has been episode four in our Second Corinthians Bible Study podcast. We invite you to join us next time for episode five, entitled Looking to the Resurrection with Christ, where we'll discuss Second Corinthians chapter five, verses one through 10. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes 
and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.